and welcome to Story of the Book, where middle grade YA and picture book authors tell the stories of their books from beginning to end. I'm Hayley Chewins. I write books about magical girls with secrets. And I'm Lindsay Eager. I write books about growing up in this weird, wondrous world. And we're so very happy to have you here. Let's get started. On today's episode of Story of the Book, we're going to be talking to Christine Day. Christine Day grew up in Seattle, nestled between the sea, the mountains, and the pages of her favorite books. Her debut novel, I Can Make This Promise, was a best book of the year from Kirkus, School Library Journal, NPR, and the Chicago Public Library, as well as a Charlotte Huck Award Honor Book and an American Indian Youth Literature Award Honor Book. Her second novel, The Sea in Winter, was an Indie Kids Next List selection, a Junior Library Guild selection, and the recipient of three starred reviews. She also wrote the forthcoming She Persisted, Maria Tallchief, an early reader biography in a new series inspired by Chelsea Clinton's best-selling picture book. Christine lives in the Pacific Northwest with her family. Her work is represented by Susie Townsend at New Leaf Literary. Christine is such a wonderful, kind soul and a wonderful writer too. And I've known her for a while. I had the pleasure of reading her first novel and um, blurbing her first novel. And I just think she's a really, really special writer. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Okie doke. Okay, so I guess we'll just dive right in. So hi, Christine. Thank you so much for coming to Story of the Book and chatting to us about The Sea in Winter. It was totally my pleasure. Yay. Okay, so we, we always start with um, where did you get the idea for The Sea in Winter and how did the book begin? So um, my ideas kind of come from everywhere. There's like multiple kind of streams and tributaries that just from my life observations, my personal experiences, things that I want to see in books, um, they all sort of just come from anywhere, everywhere, and kind of coalesce into an idea. And so um, I always struggle to say exactly where this particular book came from. But um, to me, I think that some of the kind of main points of origin for the sea in winter sort of include the fact that I was a ballet student growing up, just like Maisie. Um, I trained really seriously at the Pacific Northwest Ballet School for about 10 years uh, until I was about 15 years old and um, because of recurring injuries had to stop my dance education. And, um, so that was always that particular experience, I think, is something I really wanted to see more in middle grade books and just in books for young people in general, because I think that um, as we sort of grow into adulthood, it is really easy to forget just how vital some of those hobbies and activities that you um, participated in as a child really feels so central to your life. And um, despite how central it is or how much, you know, the adults in your life tell you 
you can do whatever you want. You can become whatever you want as long as you work really hard and stick with it. And it's what you're passionate about. All the passion in the world, all the hard work can still, unfortunately, not amount to the thing you want it to. And um, I think that that's just a really, it's something I wish someone would have helped me process more when I was that 15 year old girl feeling really detached from myself and really um, kind of lost significantly for the first time in my life. Um, and it was totally because I had just thought that I was going to continue to work hard at this ballet thing and maybe become a dancer with a company someday. And when that goes out of your reach, that can be really painful. And so um, that particular experience, I think that I realized it was something I really wanted to write about actually at my wedding when both my sister and my father in their speeches talked about my life growing up. And they both happened to mention the fact that when I stopped taking ballet lessons, I was in a kind of dark place. They were like her, and one particular line from my sister's speech that just continued to linger in my memory was that my smile was gone. And, um, you know, it's interesting to kind of hear your loved ones and the people in your life talk about your life in a way that um, <laughs> that is just, you know, how they view it. And at that point, I felt like I was pretty far away from that girl that I was, you know, and I hadn't really thought of ballet in that way in years. And then to hear it sort of brought back up at this beautiful gathering with all the most important people in my life, you know, it was really like, wow, they're right. I was not myself for a while in my teen years. And it did sort of start with um, my ballet education coming to an end. Mm. And um, as someone who had sort of you know, moved on. Like I felt like I had done and accomplished so many things since then. And I hadn't felt that kind of like hollow sadness for a while. Um, I was just like, huh, that is interesting. That might be something worth exploring. And again, it kind of made me think that that's something I would like to see more in books for younger audiences and for kids who might be going through similar things as athletes or as dancers or as whatever it is, you know, it can apply to various situations, I think. So um, I think that the idea was sort of planted by those things. And then um, I was also just really drawn to um, some of the local histories that I had learned in grad school about uh, some of the native folks on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State and how there was, for example, this big mudslide that happened, the Ozette mudslide, which is like a uh, really kind of, it's not a piece of history that a lot of people know about, I think, but it was one of those kind of really devastating 
tragedies that actually hope happened to a group of native folks pre-contact. And um, I remember talking about that with one of my professors and mentors uh, and he was telling me, you know, that particular history and the fact that if you speak with Macaw folks, a lot of them can tell you exactly whose families were in that slide that happened back in like the 1700s. That is still history that they held on to and that that was still like a significant tragedy that they overcame before every, everything else that happened with uh, settler contact and with the spread of new diseases, the loss of land, the, um, you know, loss of fishing rights and just complete disruption of the traditional way of life. And he was telling me, you know, that history really shows how resilient Native people were even before all that stuff started happening. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, he is so right, you know? And so that was another thing that I was just sort of um, interested in, wanted to not necessarily like address that too specifically in the book itself, but that theme of resilience and of overcoming losses again and again through the power of family and community and your culture was something that I really wanted to bring to this book as well. So those are kind of the main things. And then the last point of origin that I'll reference, because I think it's significant, is the fact that this was my second book, my second contracted book. When I sold I Can Make This Promise, it sold in a two-book deal, which was really amazing. And, you know, I was so excited at the time. And It felt like a really big accomplishment because, you know, every book deal doesn't guarantee more. And the fact that um, my editor really saw something in me and wanted me to continue to write for her past that first book, even though, you know, I didn't have any ideas to pitch her or anything like that quite yet, um, that meant a lot to me. And then when the time actually came to write it, Um, I felt really stuck and really, um, it was really difficult and weird actually, uh, writing under contract for the first time and kind of having that like experience because all of a sudden I had this whole team of people, my agent, my editor, the other folks at Harper who had given me this huge vote of confidence and they were all just like, oh, yeah, you'll figure it out. <laughs> you know? And, and um, which was really wonderful and lovely of them. But uh, my imposter syndrome definitely really uh, set in with that second book, second book syndrome, imposter syndrome, whatever you want to call it. I think that for a lot of writers, the second published book is kind of the hardest one. And um Yeah, it was just all of a sudden I was asking myself, like, well, what do you want people to really expect from you? Because now you're kind of building a reputation as you continue to publish books, especially when you're writing for the same 
audience, this contemporary middle grade sphere. And my books have done really well in the like school and library market. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, well, you want to continue to write things that, um, you know, teachers can use in the classroom and sort of, but are also fun and that kids will hopefully enjoy and are not, you know, just textbooks in disguise, <laughs> you know, you know, sort of building that reputation. Um, I really grappled with that and with what it was that I actually wanted to do and say, and now that my foot was in the door and there were people really uh, expecting something from me, counting on me in a sort of big way and compounded by the fact, of course, that the Sea in Winter launched the Heart Drum imprint, <laughs> this brand new native focused imprint. And Rosemary asked me if I would be okay with my second book being a part of their inaugural lineup. And, wow. Um, yeah, which was definitely, really... I want to talk more about that later during yes. the publishing, if that's okay. Yeah. Can oh, we absolutely can. Okay, good. Yeah, but it's, it definitely was one of those things where it was just like, um, you know, of course I said yes, because she basically asked me, she was like, you know, either we can do a fall 2020 release. And, um, and of course, this was before the pandemic. This was a long time ago um, when fall 2020 release didn't seem like such a uh, sentence. Um, yeah. <laughs> in the before times. In the before times, yeah. exactly. So she was like, you know, this can either be a fall 2020 release under um, her children's or cruel tree, you know, and that would be totally fine. Or if you're up for it and we would love to just promote the heck out of this and have you be a part of heart drum and I was like of course I want to be in heart drum duh yeah. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so that was also very exciting but came with its own amount of pressure because it was the very mm -hmm. first book to come from this brand new imprint that meant so much to so many people and was so much bigger than myself mm -hmm. and so um there was just a lot of pressure with this second book and I had a lot of kind of false starts with it and I was in my head over it a lot and um, also and this is something I'm curious to see if either of you had experienced after finishing your first book after I hit send on I can make this promise and I was completely done editing it I was not going to touch it again until it came out um I just went through this funk. I were um, not totally unlike the funk that I experienced, strangely enough, all those years ago when my ballet time came to an end, where mm -hmm. I just felt really hollow and detached from myself. And I was just sort of, um, I don't know, uh, mentally, emotionally spent. Mm -hmm. And um, it was something that, you know, luckily, like it didn't linger too long. It was maybe like a month or two where I was just sort of staring at walls and randomly crying <laughs> and just <laughs> kind of going through this like time where once again, I, you know, just didn't really fully feel like I was in my body. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually met up with one of my 
with my main mentor professor from grad school, uh, the same man that I had talked to about, you know, the macaws and their resilience. And um, we went, we got coffee and uh, I, we hadn't really talked in a few months. And he was like, oh, you know, usually when you hear from the kids, everything's fine and they're just busy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and which is fair enough. But um, when he said that, and when actually the reason why I hadn't reached out to him in a while was because I hadn't been feeling totally okay or like myself, I instead told him, I was like, you know, I actually have been going through kind of a funk ever since I turned in, I can make this promise. I don't know what is up with me exactly. And he very smartly, he just was like, oh, well, let's talk about this. You know, let's kind of go through what you've been feeling and tell me exactly kind of how and when this arose. And, you know, he was like, it's, and I was like, you know, it's, it's fine. Like I'm, I'm okay now, <laughs> but, but it was like for a minute there, I didn't feel totally okay. And then as we were talking, um, he is much wiser than I am. And he told me, he was like, you know, Christine, it almost sounds like you went through a sort of postpartum depression with your book. And I was like, whoa. And um, yeah, he told me about some writer friends that he actually knows and people he had talked to who also go through similar funks after they finish big projects like that. And so um, talking with him, you know, it helped and it brought it all sort of back into focus for me where it was just like, wow, I guess that is true that this was like, I had been experiencing so many highs and like, you know, finishing the book. I had also like my husband and I had just moved into our first house. We had just gotten married a few months earlier. And so it was just like incredible life milestone one after another, you know, and I was, and then my brain chemistry just went in the opposite direction. Right. And I think that's another thing that can happen with writers and with anyone who creates anything, whether it's, you know, a baby or something kind of significant, like a project like this, where you spend a lot of time and all of a sudden it's like, you're supposed to be just continuing to coast on that happiness. But for some reason, you kind of need to turn inward and um, hit pause for a moment. So that was actually the other thing that I, the sea and winter sort of came from was me processing that uh, weird funk I was in after I finished I Can Make This Promise and how um, I just sort of felt a little bit detached and aimless for a while. So that was a very long answer <laughs> to your very simple question of where this idea came from. <laughs> Those are the sort of roots and things that came together to form this book. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I don't know. I'm curious. Have either of you ever experienced a sort of uh, period like that after finishing a book or anything? I guess you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but I'm curious. <laughs> I think it's like going from having this period of time where all your energy, all your like mental focus is aimed at one goal, one thing. And especially mm -hmm. I think when it's your first book, because normally 
maybe you haven't been writing that one book for several years, but you've been working towards the goal of getting published for so long. Like some people, it takes you 10 years or five years. Like, um, yeah, mm-hmm. so it's, you're just focused on that goal so intensely. And then once you achieve it, obviously it's amazing. Like it's an incredible feeling. You're like, I'm finished, you know, but then straight after that, it is this kind of loss because suddenly you don't have this thing that's like <laughs> occupied your mind for so long and I always find it hard to go from one project to another because I just completely fall in love with the project that I'm working on and so when it's over there is a kind of it's almost like reminds me of you know when you read an amazing book and then you kind of have like a book hangover afterwards because you yeah you just want to read that book again but like for the first time you know you just want that like that feeling that you have with that book. And sometimes I have that with writing projects where I just love that world so much. And I just want to hang out there longer, but like the book's finished and I have to move on. And it is like, it is hard. Yeah, yeah it totally is. I feel like um, I, I think what you said about, especially with the first one, because how, because of however long you spent getting published, you know, all of the near misses, everyone goes through them, yeah. you know? I don't know a single writer who hasn't had rejected projects yeah. or passion projects they had to set aside, yeah. whatever, you know? Um, yeah. So I think that with that first one, and especially I can make this promise as well as a very like personal story for me. And it was total, mm-hmm. you know, labor of love, as mm-hmm. you said. So I think that um, every book is a really serious labor of love and that's the only way that you can sustain going through this wild process is if you really genuinely develop a deep love for it yeah or else simply wouldn't make it so (laughs) (laughs) how about you Lindsay have you had that feeling well you know this about me Haley and Kristen you may not know but I bounce around and always have a lot of projects so if I finish one project and turn it in I'm immediately like within the same day working on whatever's next. Um, (laughs) I'm so jealous of that. (laughs) I know. Well, but, but I also know that much of that is a defense against that funk. (laughs) So it is absolutely not, I think postpartum is like the best analogy for it. That's really a, a beautiful one. It also reminds me of when I did theater in high school, because I was a huge theater nerd after every play, closing night it I just was devastated and it was always such a beautiful experience and so wonderful but it just was like gutting to take down the set to turn in the costumes to be like tomorrow night I just stay home I'm not going and doing this and mm-hmm. um in 10th grade we did Les Mis and I was just in the course I was I didn't even have a principal part but I was so like traumatized by the happiness of being in that play and then having it end. Uh, Mm -hmm. My family went to Disneyland literally the next day we had like a vacation planned and I was distraught. And then also couldn't Mm -hmm. listen to the music for like a good 15 years because it just brought me back to like that gutting feeling of like, it's over, it's Mm -hmm. done. It'll never be, even if I'm ever in a production of it again, or if I want to listen to the music again, it'll never be the same. Oh, but yeah. I totally get that. I totally do. Uh, thank you. It's hard. For sharing that. It, I do think that that is something a lot of creative people go through. Yeah. yeah. I will say too. Great example. 
Yeah. Well, just, just, I also was thinking about the way that I talk to my husband about whatever my projects are. Um, and he points this out with much love and brevity that I always am like, oh, that last project was so good and so fun. I wish I could work on it again. And he'll be like, okay, but when you were working on it, it was hard and you hated it. And you were <laughs> like, it was very difficult. You're just saying that because, you know, now you're at the point where you can look back and be like, wow, that was really good. That was, that was a good time. And <laughs> so I think we do sort of retcon our experience. And in that way, I think it is like childbirth because, yeah. you know, I've had two babies and, um, absolutely after like a year with both of them, I looked back on the pregnancy and the delivery and the, the first six months of their life with a very different perspective, not like, wow, that was fun. We should do it again, but definitely much more like, yeah, it wasn't that bad. It was that bad, (laughs) but the, the relief of being done with it changes how we look at it. Um, which Mm. I think is, is again, like, how else could we go on and write another book if we weren't able to sort of look back on, on whatever project we just finished with that kind of nostalgia and thinking, oh, it was better then. Mm. (laughs) That was when I felt like a good writer. No, it wasn't. (laughs) Probably not. Probably not really. (laughs) But, but it feels better to say that. Well, Christina, I want to hear more about your drafting process. Um, Same. Your creative, like how, like where you start, how much do you write every day? Where do you write? What do you write with? What do you need to write? How does that all work for you? And you can talk specifically about the sea in winter, but also if that's like how you always do it, then feel free to rope in other projects as well. But will you talk some about that process? Of course. So um, I am finding that my process tends to change with every book. And also that um, maybe part of that is because like, I'm just at different phases of my life with every book too. Because for example, with the book I'm working on right now, I am navigating new motherhood and trying to find um, moments of time where I can actually focus and really uh, get into that headspace of focusing on my project rather than on my child. And so, you know, it's, it's been really, really um, amazing and wild and interesting. <laughs> and um, with the sea in winter, um, that was when like, I, for the first time had kind of nothing but time to write. Um, I wrote, I can make this promise mostly while I was still in grad school. And so I would like basically open up my laptop and sit with my morning coffee before classes would start, before my day would really begin. And that was kind of when I would start really writing was sort of in the early mornings and then a lot like between classes and, um, sort of on the weekends too and like just you know my laptop was just always with me and I would basically find little pockets of time wherever I could um and that was how I wrote a lot of the time and like um 
you know, lots of crowded coffee shops, lots of time in the library, everywhere. Like I could basically turn it on anytime I wanted with I can make this promise. With Sea and Winter, oddly enough, when I suddenly had, you know, moved into my first place, <laughs> had a beautiful designated writing area, something I thought I had wanted for years, you know, um, and I just had like these beautiful, great sweeping moments of time just at my disposal. All of a sudden, I didn't know how to write anymore. <laughs> and so um, that was like a bit difficult actually, but with time, I kind of got into a rhythm where once I like sort of found my footing with this book and how I write, I tend to like do a lot of outlining, but my outlines are always subject to change. Um, <laughs> I really like the save the cat outline. And um, so that's kind of like, I use a sort of loose interpretation of that. But usually when I start actually writing, I will realize that like the themes and the th things that I thought I wanted to explore with the book when I just had it in outline form were not actually what the heart of the book was. And so then I will kind of like um, renegotiate. It's constantly a negotiation process between where I thought I was going and where I'm actually headed. And so, um, you know, once I had several false starts, I probably went through easily like a couple dozen different introductory chapters for the sea in winter <laughs> and like I don't know what it is but with me I need to get the beginning really feeling pretty right before I'm able to really move forward <laughs> significantly and so it's like I will have an outline and like some version of a few chapters for like a while and I'll just be in that stage like kind of you know being like oh I don't really like this particular opening, maybe if I change a little bit like this. And then it's like, by going through those opening chapters over and over, I get more familiar with the characters and their dynamics and with the sort of atmospheric feel of the story. And um, that is roughly what my process is like. But as I said, I kind of, it kind of changes a little bit each time. And sometimes I'll get further along and then still go back and just kind of uh, rehash everything. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> it is a little bit more seamless. It really depends. But with the sea in winter, my process was basically me trying to figure out how to actually stay engaged while I had my first actual writing space. <laughs> and and trying to figure out how to actually fill my time now that I was uh, really kind of trying to become like a full-time writer, I guess. Mm. Um, and yeah, so it was just a lot of and a lot of... Um, me basically uh, faking it until I made it. <laughs> I wanted to ask you um, if it was, I know that this was obviously a very personal story for you because of the ballet 
the, the you know Maisie's connection with ballet and her injury um mm. but also the beautiful history that's woven in uh woven through it and I wanted to ask you is that is that does that make it writing harder that it's so personal to you or is it kind of easier because you can connect more easily and kind of tap into that those feelings more easily that is a great question um I think that, I think it kind of depends maybe. I think that it can be easier because these are, again, things, a lot of the things that I sort of write about, I'm like writing for preteen Christine <laughs> um, and sort of the things that I wish I had known or sort of had the capacity to listen to more when I was in that age group. Um, and I also think that just the practice of writing itself, um, the fact that I've written so many words now, the fact that I really have spent so much time working on my craft, even if I am sort of um, figuring it out as I go along, I think that like the actual act of writing does get easier. But um, yeah, it really depends because sometimes some of this stuff, it sometimes it can be hard to find the right words for it or the sort of the right way to convey what I'm trying to say um, because it can be a very particular thing, especially with um, highlighting Native histories, for example, and kind of different aspects of what I consider to be the sort of urban Pacific Northwest, specifically native experience. Um, because there are so few books still um, across all kind of genres and audiences that really grapple with um, what it means to be native. And um, there's not a lot of education centered around a lot of these histories that I'm talking about and that I'm really interested in and invested in. And so it can just feel really um, like the stakes are maybe a little bit higher for me to really choose my words carefully and to kind of get those histories portrayed right. So um, yeah, I don't know. It is definitely one of those open-ended questions that I think about a lot and still don't fully know if it is actually easier or harder for me to write what I write because I just do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Lindsay, did you have any other questions about drafting? Well, I, um, I wanted to actually hear you talk about the setting um, mm -hmm. because the emotional arc of the story with Maisie and her ballet injury is so just raw and honest and beautifully told, but I was also just blown away by um, your relationship with the Olympic Peninsula, um, Maisie's relationship with it. It just sprang up. And I, I live in Utah, but the Pacific Northwest is like my ideal, like I would move there in a heartbeat if I could. I love the cold and the fog and the green and the, the, dramatic grace see mm -hmm. all of that I love it so much so this was 
Um, just like if I want a nice little vacation up to Washington, I can just open up your book now, basically is how I feel about it. Um, and I, so I just wanted to hear you talk about drafting about that writing, writing the setting and weaving that in, in a way that felt so integral to the book. Obviously a lot of that has to do with um, the, like you were saying, like the, the native histories that are there that are important, but, but also just foundationally, I can't imagine this book being set anywhere else. And it's so striking to me. Um, so impressive to me that you managed to take a book about something that isn't really totally about the setting. I mean, she's not like working the land or, you know, it's, it's very much, (laughs) And yet you still made it so much a part of Maisie's story. So would you talk a little about how that is with drafting for you or if that's special to this book? I would love to talk about that. Thank you. That was all so kind. And it means a lot to me because I really do. I, I do spend a lot of like time and thought and effort in my settings and my books because I think that um, the setting is, really should feel kind of like its own character and um I do think that like yeah I just I love books that put me somewhere really specifically and that feels very like like you said like it can't take place anywhere else because of the mood that it offers and how um the sort of things that are observed in the setting are mirrored through the character's arc and journey um so yeah for me I really just I am the same way I love the Pacific Northwest so much and I don't think it's just because I'm from here or just because of any one particular thing but it's just there's something really rich and enchanting in this particular little corner of the world and um yeah, for me, like I said, I kind of, I really try to mirror what the characters, specifically Maisie in this instance, are going through, through the settings and everything that she is seeing and experiencing. Um, you know, those choppy gray waters when she takes the ferry across from Seattle to the, um, to Bainbridge Island in the Olympic Peninsula and kind of, you know, giving a little glimpse of like that, the cold air and um, seeing things like a, like a nursery stump in the forest, like this, um, you know, a little, what that is, is it's literally like a tree stump that now has new growth and different forms of plants growing out of it. Um, and yeah, I um, also part of, so towards the end of my writing process, I should mention, I actually went on a writing retreat to um, Woodby Island in Puget Sound. And that was in the middle of the winter. That was uh, like, it was actually right around the holidays. It was in December. And we were going out on like these, um, like sort of nature walks and stuff. Me and the other ladies that were there, it was at Hedgebrook and um, some pretty amazing YA writers were there. Laura Ruby, Brandy Colbert, 
Stacy Lee, um, Nidhi Chinani, yeah, Cherie. Uh, there were a bunch of us. So anyways, um, we were all here on this like beautiful island in the middle of Puget Sound in the middle of like this really cold winter and that was towards the end of drafting the book and so I felt really immersed in sort of the setting and environment that's similar to what Maisie was experiencing and I think that like you know some of the things that I physically saw while we were out like forest bathing and stuff actually like made it into the book because you know it really felt I don't know, like there was something profound happening there, being gathered with other women writers and just being in that particular place and nearly reaching the end of this book that had been so difficult, but I had almost made it. And at that point I was really, really in love with the story and it just felt like everything around me was speaking to me. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I'm really glad that that all came through because I think that it is really important and um again with some of the like kind of local histories too like the restoration of the Elwha River is something that is sort of mentioned and that is like the biggest um there were two dams that blocked this river um in like sort of the top of the Olympic Peninsula and um they were both taken down essentially because they weren't supplying electricity for anything or really serving any significant purpose. And the river literally came roaring back to life. And that happened very recently in like 2011 and 2014, I think were when the dams were removed. And it's just a dramatic difference where like the entire Delta completely changed. And so another thing too, is that like, even though a lot of the stuff that you see in books is metaphor some of it is actually also very real like that is a real river that really was like clogged and essentially stopped for almost an entire century and now it's just roaring back to life after being cared for again and um yeah I think that those I think that like the human relationships with the environment are just something I I'm realizing now that I return to a lot in my work because it's something that I think is very timely and very um, important and not just in a metaphorical sense, but also just in the real world too. So it's definitely stuff I'm interested in. Well, I love how Jack is this figure who brings those stories to life for Maisie and Connor. Mm -hmm. And um, he says something about how, um, the idea that the the river the health of the river reflects the health of the community or the health of the people and I think that is, is such a powerful beautiful idea and I loved how you did that how you wove everything together it really did feel like this beautiful tapestry even the, the image of the of the rivers the network of rivers coming mm -hmm. together um that's how, yeah, the book felt to me. It just felt like these rivers or, or threads converging and, um, yeah, being woven together in this really beautiful way. And I think some, I think definitely there's a connection with Maisie and her environment, but then also 
her um, her connection to her family is so beautifully portrayed. And Lindsay and I talk about this a lot about how in middle grade, obviously there's this there's this uh, there's this trend uh, which makes a lot of sense why people do it, but the trend of kind of getting rid of the parents so that the so that the middle the middle grade kid or the you know the twelve year old kid the thirteen year old kid can go on an adventure without having any disturbances or any rules or anything like that, um, and you don't do that. Your your families are such a huge part of the main character's life, um, and I think you're just so good at writing like kind of happy and complicated families uh like the people you know the families in your books are they're people who genuinely love each other they want to be there for their children they want to be there for each other um the children feel connected to the parents but it's not without its complications there are there are complications as there always are with relationships and um I was I was venturing toward a question and I can't remember what I was going to ask but yeah I guess um Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that, about kind of writing families in middle grade, as opposed to just kind of focusing on the individual child? Mm -hmm. Can I add on a complication to that question? Because the Lindsay (laughs) way, as Haley knows, I, I also was so impressed by um, the craft that it takes to have a character, a, a middle grade character experiencing things while in the same room with their family and so many scenes in your book Maisie is not off on her own in her room off on an adventure off alone on the bus or whatever like she is sitting she is with her family her family is present and yet you still manage to keep the focus on her to let us go deep into her emotional, you know, like into her brain. So maybe craft wise too, what does it take to write a character who is present with their family? Right. Oh, those are great questions. Thank you. And what an observation too. Thanks. That's, um, I had never really even thought of it that way, but you're so right that like, she is like, I mean, obviously she is present with them pretty much throughout the entire book almost. And yet she still is feeling that detachment and stuff. And that really was, um, I mean, to me, I think when I was writing it, that just felt like the truest way to sort of depict what she was going through because that sort of, um, you know, that headspace we were talking about, that sense of loss and how it kind of, it's not something you just feel when you're alone. You actually feel it, I think, more acutely when you're surrounded by happy, cheerful loved ones and um, that that can be really alienating. And that is actually really where a lot of the tension comes in, in the story, I think. Um, And so, yeah, for me, I basically just, I think I, I hear what you're saying about how it is easier, I think, for a lot of middle grade stories to just kind of have the kids off on their own having an adventure. And I I love those stories too. And I think that there's certainly space for that. But I also think that, you know, when kids are growing up and it's a sort of, as kids grow up, they are surrounded by their family, their friends, their neighborhood, their schools, and whatever like extracurricular activities they have. Those are kind of like where kids 
spend most of their time and do most of their like self-reflection and thinking and trying to find connections with people and sometimes floundering and all that good middle grade achy stuff happens, you know? So for me, I just really want to write those like realistic families that are just like families of people I have known or um, you know families that are basically just there for each other and are trying their best um, because it is true I think that um, most parents and in this case um, Jack is Maisie's stepfather although that's never it's very clear that he is her stepfather, but she never actually calls him her stepdad. He is always just Jack, just like she never, you know, calls Connor her half brother. He is just her brother. He is Connor. And that is, that was a really purposeful choice on my part because I think that, you know, any um, parent who steps into that role, whether or not they are the biological parent is a little bit beside the point because they are the ones who are there helping to shape this young person, having serious conversations with them, setting the rules for them, um, sort of guiding them through these milestones and moments in their life. And so, um, yeah, I just really wanted to show a beautiful blended family and I wanted it to be a contemporary native family and to not have their like, sort of complications or any sort of suffering directly necessarily linked to the fact that they are native. Um, I just wanted to show that, you know, these are people with full lives who, um, you know, have these histories and know these histories and um, have certain things going on that are specific to their experience. But ultimately this is just a family off trying to have a midwinter vacation, which is, you know, I mean, that's it. And they're really close and um, always, almost always in each other's presence, very present in each other's lives, even though there are things like, you know, um, Maisie's mom spends a lot of time on her phone. Sometimes, uh, Jack says things that just bother Maisie. She can't even like really put a finger on why, but she's just irritated. <laughs> and um, Connor, who is just like this little human ray of sunshine, you know, with all this energy and all this like kitty optimism. And that kind of makes him a little bit, you know, he can sometimes have a hard time sort of reading the room. <laughs> and he just wants to you know, constantly share his enthusiasm and his love with his family and with Maisie. And sometimes she's not up for it. And I think that like, those are all such little things, but they are so big in kids' lives. And it's like for, you know, kids, when they look back on, you know, their families and their lives growing up, a lot of that is sort of the things that kind of shape their whole worldview. And so that's why I really try to emphasize um, those parental connections and just sort of sit with what does all of this actually mean for this young person? Um, because I think that as simple as it might come across, there's a lot of 
really deep and complex things happening all at once through every interaction and through every um, just moment that they share together. Yeah, totally agree. And you just do it so, so well, like really just do it so well. So thanks for talking about that. Okay. So I think we're going to move on to talking about revisions. Um, Do you want to just walk us through like kind of what, what the revision process looked like for you and also kind of how you revise? Like, do you have a set process for doing it? Um, Yeah. Or was it, and was like, was it very different from revising your first book, that kind of stuff? Actually, I suppose my revision process has been pretty consistent (laughs) throughout my uh, publishing career so far because I basically will just, um, before I get started on anything, you know, I will either have a phone call with my editor or I'll read through the email that she sends me. And um, I just really, you know, sit with everything that she said or suggested or questions that she had. Um, And then I will usually spend like a day just, I won't even open the manuscript yet. I'll just sit with those kind of first impressions and let them sort of simmer. And then I will go through the manuscript and I will read all of the comments before I actually get started and just sort of scroll through everything. Um, And yeah, I sort of, you know, just, for this book, like we were, since this was my second book and we were kind of talking a lot about the things that I wanted to sort of accomplish um, from the moment I sort of pitched the idea through the different versions of the draft. And so the revision was mostly a lot of just sort of cleaning up the grammar and um, really honing in on some sort of, not even necessarily like key moments but interactions of like does this actually ring true to Maisie's voice and like things like that which were a little bit more um interesting and things like um I remember one thing that we sort of talked about and after my editor raised it as like a does this really make sense was um it in the like final version I sent before the first kind of major revision um Maisie was a vegetarian but she was like a closet vegetarian (laughs) she like didn't want to tell her parents that she wasn't interested in eating any meat or seafood anymore and that that was sort of a thing because Jack is a gooey duck diver and um they eat a lot of seafood (laughs) And there were like scenes with them going and digging for clams and sort of exercising some of those clam digging and fishing rights that were so like hard fought for by native activists in the like 1970s. And so um, I, I had like, this was just like another, in my mind, I was like, oh, this is just another thing that she's sort of hiding from them. She's not letting them see how she really feels about things. And in that way, I was like, oh yeah, this is good. This makes sense. And then and then when Rosemary responded and she was just like, I wonder if Maisie being a vegetarian is really adding anything because um, it just seems hard or like difficult. Like, it, you know, how would 
her, her parents, you know, obviously you see them together a lot. They are the ones who are preparing food for her. Uh, is she just not going to eat what they give her? Is she just not going to bring this up as a conversation? Normally young people who become vegetarian are pretty vocal about it, you know? And so um, I was like, oh, those are some very good points. And so I changed it. And so it was things like, like that, um, kind of the overall shape of the story up until the ending, really. It, it, the ending, the first one that I sent to her in that kind of before the first major revision was a little bit um, rushed and it just didn't tie it all together the way that I think that the real, the published ending does. And that was another thing that we talked about. And that was um, same thing with I Can Make This Promise actually, where it was like, I don't know, maybe I was just excited and kind of rushing to the end, like, woo, here we are, you know, I've almost finished this book. And then um, just to uh, have Rosemary be like, hmm, maybe let's rethink this a little, <laughs> you know? And so for me, it's just sort of, yeah, going through a lot of, you know, just cleaning up, making sure that everything kind of makes sense, making sure that I have numbered the chapters correctly. So far, I somehow have not been able to number my chapters correctly in a manuscript before I send it off. <laughs> there will be repeats. There will be miscalculations. It's okay. But <laughs> um, so there's stuff like that, you know, basically just... Yeah, I think that the revision process is one of my favorite parts because most of the real hard work has been done and it's just looking for those little inconsistencies like a character who rode a bike somewhere and then magically ends up somewhere else without any mention of a bike ever again. That was and I can make this promise. You know, things like that where it's just um, easy to miss or... Um, I will repeat just four times on the same page, you know, just because. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, my revision process, that's basically what it's like. I really do enjoy it. And I, I really enjoy having those conversations with Rosemary, too, because it makes everything in the book feel that much more real, where it's like, wow, these are real people in our minds with real agency and real um, would they do this? Would they do that? Sort of dynamics that I think really uh, just help me bring the book to where I want it to be. Cool. Yeah. And it's so great working with an editor who really understands your vision for a book and understands you as a writer and believes in your work and then is able to ask these questions that you wouldn't even think about because um, you're so close to it. Um, yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. Was there anything that was like, um, yeah, I guess you've kind of, you've kind of covered the revision process quite uh, comprehensively, but was there anything that was like a sticking point? You mentioned the ending. Mm -hmm. um, was that kind of the hardest thing? to revise or um probably just because I basically scrapped the whole last few chapters and kind of rewrote them to bring quite literally bring the book to a different place and to um just sort of 
show it all in a different way. Yeah, I think that the the ending is definitely the hardest part because that was the most significant part of the revision. Mm. Mm-hmm. Lindsay, did you have any questions about revisions? I mean, I could ask you a thousand follow-up questions. I did want to say you're not the only one who misnumbers her chapters. <laughs> yeah, I, I, do I that started too. doing chapter names instead so that I don't even have to. <laughs> I'm like, I will never number my chapters again. I'm just going to give them titles Clever. or just, or I just write chapter and I'm like, that's yep. for layout to figure out. It's not my problem. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, this was, I mean, I want to try to ask this in a way that doesn't have major spoilers. So maybe you can answer that, answer it also without spoilers. Mm-hmm. Um, this book, I mean, immediately from the first chapter, I think you can guess as a reader that this book could end in two very different ways. One with her returning to ballet and one without her returning to ballet in the same way that she, you know, is dreaming of the whole book. And I won't like, let's maybe like not say which one you chose, but you could just maybe talk about, um, was there a time when you chose the other direction for the book? Was that part of renegotiating the ending? And if so, like, just, I don't know, maybe you could talk about those two different pathways and how you decide in general, which, like where emotionally you're going to bring your character, mm-hmm. especially in a middle grade where you are sort of expected to end it happily, end it with like everything sort of tied up in a bow and neatly. Um, so there's some reader expectations there too, I, I think. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. For sure. Yeah, I think you're right that it becomes apparent pretty quickly that this is either going to go, as you said, one of two ways. <laughs> there's not a lot of like open for interpretation there. Um, and yes, actually, I went back and forth between which direction I wanted to bring it quite a lot, especially in the early versions of the draft. Um, and actually, one thing that sort of helped me decide which path to take was when I was approached to write a different book which was the She Persisted Maria Tallchief um, volume in the new She Persisted chapter book series. And um, yeah, I will not say which way I went, but the fact that I was able to write the biography for Maria Tallchief, America's first prima ballerina who was born in Fairfax, Oklahoma to um, an Osage father and her whole life journey, which was amazing to research and to write about for a young audience. Um, The chapter books are a little bit younger than um, The Sea in Winter is because they're not middle grade. They're more for like for grades one to three. Um, Yeah, I will not say which way I went, but I will say that um, the fact that I wrote Maria's story made up my mind. No, that's great. That's perfect. And I think speaks to the importance of, or maybe not the importance of, but just zooming out as a creator and just realizing like, oh, I am actually going to be telling more than one story in my life. Mm. And so yeah. I can, 
this ending may be right for this book, but there will be other endings for other books and I can explore the, yeah. the road less traveled somewhere else too. That's right. That's exactly right. And that is basically how I viewed it as well was, well, there will be plenty of other like books for plenty of other types of endings. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. I love it. Cool. So yeah. Do you want to chat a little bit about, um, yeah, we want to ask you about how this book became a book and you mentioned before the heart drum imprint mm -hmm. and how this is the first book for that imprint, which is so exciting and wonderful. Um, so yeah, I guess, well, I guess you've kind of covered it. Um, but like it was a two book deal um, and then Rosemary came to you with this idea of the, of the heart drum imprint. Um, but yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about like, I guess, yeah, how that, how that felt? Do you want to talk a little bit more about it or if you have anything to add? Um, yeah, just that basically writing for heart drum, as I said, as like, um, incredible and intimidating as it was, it has just been a really wonderful experience and, um, it has been really empowering to see how people have reacted to the imprint so far because the titles have found a lot of success and they're already so very different and take, um, take on different uh, experiences and different types of stories so well. And I was also lucky enough to do a lot of events with some of the other Heart Drum authors and that has been really fun. We all just laugh a lot. We talk Star Wars a lot. <laughs> we, um, <laughs> we're all really nerdy for kid lit. So it's just been a really great experience. And yeah, I mean, what a, what a privilege for me to, to have been given this chance. And um, yeah, ultimately that's just how it has all felt the whole process of creating this book and bringing it into the world is um, I just feel really privileged and fortunate to be here and to be writing this quiet little coming of age story that has so much emphasis on emotions and family and the setting and all these things that are really near and dear to my heart and um, yeah, the fact that it's resonated with other people has been really special. Yeah, I just have no regrets. Releasing a book in the middle of a pandemic turned out to actually work out pretty well for me because I was able to stay home with my baby. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was just such a different experience. The release of The Sea in Winter versus I Can Make This Promise when I, like, drove around to all of my local bookstores looking for copies and I was refreshing every social media feed every five minutes and I was just like waiting for people to love it and hate it and feel totally indifferent about it and it was a real rush whereas this release you know this release day I spent it was beginning of January beginning of 2021 uh, we had been in lockdown for months I had just brought my daughter. She was almost two months old. <laughs> so she was there with me in the world. And it was just like, wow, this is 
my second book, here it is. And, you know, maybe it will find its audience, maybe it won't. But I just felt so at peace with what I had done. And um, I just felt really like I had created something I'm going to be proud of for many, many years. Because um, I think that from a craft perspective, it showed a lot of growth for my Kamika's Promise. I think that um, I tackled a lot of themes and emotions that took some bravery and um, were not always easy to write about, but I'm really glad that I did. And the fact that like there are kids who might read it and connect with it, um, whatever it is that they're going through, it feels like it was the right book at the right time for me. And so, yeah, I have no regrets about it at all. I wanted to ask you just before we go into the advice uh, portion, um, do you have, what would you say to, like, if you could go back and talk to 15 year old Christine um, now, is there something that you would say to her? Um, I think I would just tell her that it's all going to be okay. Mm. Yeah. 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 Well, we all need to hear that sometimes all the time. So at the end of our interviews, we always like to ask our guests to talk about, we're going to ask you about a piece of oft given writing advice. And this can be something that is the type of thing that you hear in a lot of maybe institutions that teach writing or writers digest type articles. Um, And we're not judging whether it's good advice or bad advice. We don't think there is good advice and bad advice. We want to hear what you think about this because every writer approaches writing so differently. And this is meant to celebrate all the different ways that there are to come at this weird profession that we do. So I would love to hear you talk about, you mentioned this earlier about how you sort of went from writing your first book with this very busy schedule Um, And then you came to your second book and you sort of had your perfect writing desk and your perfect house and lots of quiet hours where your job was literally just to sit and to write. And then you also are a new mom now and that changes sort of the way that your time and your your, uh, brain power is broken up throughout the day. So I would love to hear you talk about the writing advice that suggests either don't quit your day job, do quit your day job, don't write until you have kids, do write before you have kids, all of these sort of writing advice judgments about the perfect time and life scenario for you to write. Right. Ooh, that's a good one. (laughs) I could talk about that one for hours, but I'll try to keep it brief. Um, Yeah, well, first of all, I would say don't quit your day job, (laughs) especially um, the fact that I was able to to basically try and become a full-time writer. It was a huge privilege for me, and it was specifically because of um, the timing when I got my first two-book deal compounded with Um, just my support system. My husband has a great job and I have health insurance because of him. Um, I also am tribally enrolled with the Upper Skagit tribe and 
they um, had give us a lot of great assistance. They gave us, you know, uh, COVID relief payments. <laughs> they they help out with um, some of our kind of utility bills and stuff like that, which um, not all tribes are able to do that sort of thing. Um, and not all Native folks are able to get tribally enrolled. And so that is a huge privilege in itself. And yeah, I mean, there's just, I was really lucky. I was also lucky because I managed to squeak through as a first generation college graduate without any student loans. I'm basically a unicorn. <laughs> um, and that is because I went to community college first. I transferred to a branch campus at the University of Washington. And then I got my bachelor or my master's degree um, from the main campus of the University of Washington. But at that point, I was able to get some research jobs. And when you have those, it reduces your tuition as well. Um, I had a lot of assistance from my parents who were really adamant about me not taking student loans. Um, and they basically told me, you know, keep your grades up and don't do anything too wild <laughs> and you can continue to live with us and we will help you out to the best of our ability. And again, like I had my tribe, um, they were able to, to like help me purchase a new computer. They were, they gave me some, um, you know, financial help to get through college. And so through those things, and also I was nannying part-time for part of college and as I said the research jobs and so I managed to do that that is rare uh the fact that I was able to make it through first generation not coming from like a big background of money or anything but just through the choices that I happened to make and um the support I was able to receive that made a huge difference in my life. And I'm a big, big um, supporter of community colleges. I absolutely think that there's, you know, no shame in not going straight to university because um, the student loans simply aren't worth it. They can really be detrimental and can really, uh, you know, uh, take away a lot from you. So that is my spiel about student loans and about financial privilege and how that um, is something that you really have to consider before you ever even think about quitting a day job. Um, and yeah, in terms of having a perfect time to write or about, you know, another sort of piece of advice that I think loops in with a lot of the things you suggested, which uh, like a lot of folks say, you have to write every single day. Um, you absolutely don't. There's, there's never really any, it's just like becoming a parent. You, you're never really fully ready. You simply dive in and you learn as you go. And, um, you know, all the preparation and stuff or all the like perfect, having a perfect desk, having huge swaths of time, whatever it is, um, you know, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to actually be ready to do your best work. And it doesn't guarantee that you will actually finish anything. And so I think that really all you, the only thing you have to do, to do in order to write well 
is to just commit to your craft, to read a lot, to write when you can, and to um, be open to the possibility that you are still a beginner, even if you have a couple books under your belt. <laughs> um, and to just really, um, if it's not working, if you're just feeling super frustrated or like you're not enjoying writing, stop for a little bit, take a break and like go outside and have a walk, reconnect with your friends and your family. And um, yeah, I mean, I really think that is so important is just giving yourself, like giving yourself a lot of grace and being really uh, gentle with yourself because a lot of the time it's just not worth, uh, obviously we do this for money and <laughs> you, you kind of have to complete things or whatever, but it's just not worth the like negative energy it can sometimes bring into your life. So just be gentle with yourself. Wonderfully said. Oh my goodness. Oh, that was and such good advice. That was. And I want to express gratitude for you for being very transparent with um, the kind of support that you have. I know that that's, or that you, that you have had and that you have. And um, I know that's something that is personally frustrating to me about the writing community, especially online is, reluctance to sort of talk about very specifics when it comes to money and mm -hmm. who's paying rent and who's like yeah. the situation is and so I just uh, personally thank you I try to yeah, say thank you to every writer who is um open about that because it's hard to be open about those things it, is, and it can be a really I think that we are definitely socially conditioned to not talk about those things so much right but um how can you how can one writer who is working multiple jobs paying off all of these loans and whatever else have a family like people who are really doing what they have to do in order to just make ends meet versus folks who are still, you know, their lifestyles are subsidized by their parents. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. Of course, no. there's, like, there's like nothing wrong with, uh, you know, receiving support. I, I wish that more people had more support and that, mm. you know, from wherever they can find it. Right. But the mm. fact is there's a lot of people who I think really beat themselves up over how much they've accomplished versus how much other folks have accomplished. And right. um, we're all just dealing, doing our best and dealing with what we've got here, you know? So, uh, yeah. And to yeah. use those as, as examples for why you are not good enough to, 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 mm -hmm. to measure yourself against someone who maybe you, you don't know that they have this patronage um, in the form of a husband who pays the bills or family members who are, you know, willing to let you stay in their spare room or whatever. Yeah. It, it can make you feel like what you're doing isn't good enough because otherwise you would be able to churn out books too. And so it, it's, it's, it's an important yeah. thing to talk about. It is. I mean, yeah. reading books and the way that the payment structure is, oh. Uh, set up in publishing it is not really ideal or conducive to someone making this their full-time gig <laughs> and honestly um if I had really understood that like 
you know, the whole prospect of earning out and all that stuff earlier on, I probably would have not even tried when I first moved. Sure. <laughs> because, um, I mean, again, I got pretty lucky, but um, it is one of those things where it's like, uh, we could have ended up in a lot of trouble if it weren't for Mazin and if it weren't for these other programs I'm a part of and the support that I've received. And um, also the fact that my books, thankfully I can make this promise in particular has sold really well. I'm very lucky. And it's all cyclical too. Like one year might be a boom year for you in publishing. And then the next year, the money just isn't there because of scheduling and where, mm-hmm. when things get paid out. And, and that doesn't mean yeah. anything about you as a writer. It doesn't mean you're not committed to your craft. If you have mm-hmm. another job to, to pay the bills, because there's no, mm-hmm. like you said, there's no ideal time to start writing. Mm-mm. And there's no, yeah. you just dive in. You just, yeah. that's right. And yeah. Yeah. I used to be really attached to the idea of like only writing. Like that was the kind of measure of success. Like if I was, if I could just only be writing. Yeah. Um, but I actually also recently realized not only that that's nearly impossible for most people, but that it's actually not that desirable for me it's actually like I'd actually like to have other things because you know only writing as much as I adore writing it's also it is lonely it's um you know you're just on your own in a room but like all day and like it's actually nice to talk to people it's nice to go outside it's nice to do other things and um yeah I I, I kind of felt like i I was just like very committed to the idea of writing and to making it happen and for that reason, kind of, um, kind of cut like other distractions out of my life. Um, and that worked for a time, but it got to a point where I was like, no, no, I actually can't only have this very narrow experience. I actually want to have other things in my life, you know? So yeah, sometimes even like, I also, um, personally have a lot of support too. And otherwise I would not be able to spend so much time writing, but, even for people who have that support, sometimes it's actually great to still have another job or to have other things going on um, just for your mental health and for your general like well-being. And just the mechanics, just because you have 10 hours a day that you could write does not mean you're going to get 10 hours worth of writing done. It just no. doesn't. <laughs> It doesn't it's also just not good to sit for that long. No, well, no. that's you. But it's not, it's like the opposite <laughs> of a cat filling the space. It doesn't. Like, yeah. <laughs> it feels like it if you're really, really busy and then you go mm-hmm. to have having like your days open to writing. It feels like it should just, oh, I was writing for two hours a day in little pieces before and now I have eight hours. So I should be able to fill that. No, no, no. You probably will still no. just get two hours done. And that's, that's yeah. And that's good. That's fine. <laughs> That's yeah. fine. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, it's just not like a normal job because it fluctuates. Like some days yeah. you'll sit and write for four hours and you're like, wow, like I'm turning out words here. And then the next day you're just, you have nothing and you have to like pack the dishwasher to like get things going. Or you're like, <laughs> yeah. I need to go for a drive or for a walk or, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. something. Um, and to just expect yourself to be, cause I used to be really rigid with myself. And in the beginning, I think it's quite good. Well, it worked for me because I went from being quite like, I guess, wishy-washy about like 
my about being able to write to being like no I'm going to write every day and I became really determined about it and I'm going to write a certain amount of words every day and that worked for a time but you can't actually be that rigid with yourself for so for like years because yeah you get to a point where you're like no I need I need like a fallow period or I need like yesterday I wrote 5,000 words or yesterday I wrote a thousand words and today I don't know where the scene is going and I think I took a wrong turn and I need to go for a walk or go dance or do something else yeah the requirements change all the time mm. you change yeah. all the time and your life changes yeah. all the time yeah and that's a good thing yeah yeah, yeah. christine this was a delight i love meeting it was you. so amazing talking to you i loved your book so so much mm-hmm. um i'm such a big fan of both of you so this is really fun Thank you so much for listening to Story of the Book. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. Or give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, stay safe and keep writing. Bye! Bye.